0: Hello, this is Ida Josephina, and you're listening to the same podcast. Today, I'm excited to tell you I'll be speaking with Tyler Alterman. Tyler is somewhat of a polymath who has, among other things, founded a science education nonprofit, a movement to encourage people to eat less meat, and a payment platform built to improve the lives of 300 million people in countries with high inflation. He also served as the director of growth for Oxford Center for Effective Altruism, co-founding movement infrastructure projects like Effective Altruism Ventures, Effective Altruism Global, and the Pareto Fellowship. In this episode, we'll be talking about existential threats, doing good, the roles of institutions versus communities, and solving some of our greatest challenges, and more. Tyler is also writing a novel touching on some of these topics that you can find at greatermindnovel.substack.com. This was a fun conversation. I hope you all like it as well, so let's just get to it. Here's Tyler Alterman. Okay, I'm here with Tyler Alterman. Welcome, it's really good to have you.
1: Hi, thanks for having me on.
0: That's Absolutely. What people say, so, right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly what people said. You did well. <laughs> so, I thought we could just kick things off by talking a bit about your background.
1: Sure. Yeah, my my background is pretty eclectic and winding. So, you should maybe interrupt me if I if I start rambling. Um, sure. Let's see. So, uh, I would say. Up until like halfway through college, I was mostly interested in non-conceptual stuff. So directing films, doing performance art, um, which was a big part of my life. Uh, stuff like that. graphic I, was, I did a lot of graphic design for, for money. Um, and that was also a principal interest back then because uh, it was fascinating to me that you could have this... Uh, this thing that seemed to affect people so profoundly on an unconscious level without them fully realizing it, myself included. Um, and I kind of fell in love with it when I moved to New York City. Um, but then actually through graphic design, I, I started getting interested in the psychological aspect of design, which none of my fellow designers seemed very interested in. Well, they, they were curious about it, but none of them were really studying it. They were mostly obsessed with like, Color palettes and how to make a graceful curve on um, uh, a letter R that you're typographically designing, which you know I, I really love too.
0: And so, um, sorry, just yeah. where was this geographically?
1: Oh, this is this is New York City. Cool. Yeah, I grew up in New York, um, upstate. Well, technically upstate, like an hour above the city, and then I went to the city for college.
0: Nice. So sorry, I I interrupted you. What were you saying?
1: Oh right. Um, Well, then I started getting interested in basically the science of how people are moved and affected by their environment, um, which graphic design is all about, kind of the art of, in a way, Um, and maybe art more broadly, uh, you might say, is 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 somewhat about this. Uh, And then I went pretty deep down the rabbit hole into. Cognitive, like the the full field of cognitive science, so everything from anthropology to artificial intelligence to neuroscience, and I, I worked in a series of I think five or six different labs um, across. What were the locations? I was at Yale. I was at University of Chicago, The New School, Baruch, um, and studying different things in each one, and and running different experiments. And just at the time uh, I started losing faith in what I was studying, the replication crisis emerged in the field of psychology. And and more broadly, um, this started happening in science. And this this is where a bunch of the the results that people were really excited about suddenly wouldn't replicate in the lab. Um, And it turned out that nobody was really running these replications to begin with, because it doesn't get you a fancy journal article. And so that field, that whole field of cognitive science was kind of due for a reckoning. And um, I grew kind of disenchanted with it because at the time, also upon graduating college, I started teaching it. Um, So I founded a a nonprofit called The Think Tank at the University of Chicago, um, which was all about teaching cognitive science in schools. Um, And then I (laughs) slowly started seeing the way in which the stuff that I was teaching was not uh, being replicated, and so I felt like I didn't know what was lies and what was true, and I was like filling these young kids' brains with all sorts of falsities. <laughs> it felt really horrible, oh, even gosh. though I was really <laughs> excited about the, the discipline as a whole. Like, like basically, by, I, I would say the um, the the think tank s- sprung out of my desire to teach a style of scientific thinking that I felt like I never gained in school, which drove me to the kind of right-brained, you might say, activities, even though that term isn't anatomically accurate, like non-conceptual activities, because it seemed to me that scientific thinking, the version I got in school, was kind of bankrupt. Um, Mm. So you basically
0: went to school to study the subject to decide that you could do it better, and then
1: you did that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I think I I, I learned that it could be done better by just being in labs, like actually doing science is is a pretty inventive activity and involves... Uh, you know, more than what you do in chemistry class, which is like you have a a recipe for an experiment that you follow and then you do it and then the chemical turns blue and then you write down that result or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was interested in, uh, scientific thinking and, and and driven to it, but um, it never felt like it had become accessible to me. So essentially the think tank was a way of trying to make cognitive science, science in general, accessible through cognitive science. And I also liked cognitive science. But yeah, I, I, I kind of felt disenchanted when the replication crisis started happening and started uh, flailing around for another meaningful thing to do. And I think I even Googled... Uh, the question, like, what do I do with my life?
0: <laughs> I, I've and definitely been there.
1: <laughs> have you done that?
0: Yes, I've done that. I've done what that. What popped
1: up? Has anything interesting popped up for you?
0: I was actually—I can't remember if this was the exact Google search, but I—I I remember I typed in the words like "how to become," but I didn't fill in the mm-hmm. rest. Like, and I Google like that. is like Google just. Google gave me options. One was like the first one was like how to become rich. The second mm, one was how mm-hmm. to become famous. The yep. third one was like how to become a pilot. I like That's how to, And then there, and then there was like the fourth or the fifth search result was like, how to become a midwife. And I was weird. like, this That's went weird. from like rich, famous to midwife, and I really wondered because I. I've never Googled the word midwife. Like where did, you know, like, I don't know. Anyway, so I've Googled that, but. <laughs>
1: I love how the first two are these like expansive archetypes or just very abstract things, rich, famous. And the third one is just pilot. Like how do I fly yeah, a vehicle pilot. the sky?
0: <laughs> exactly. It's
1: like I want to be rich, famous, Somewhat or glam. I want to fly.
0: Or a midwife. <laughs> or a midwife. <laughs> a four right. options. Yeah, I don't really know how
1: to put that in. <laughs> I wonder... Yeah,
0: that doesn't fit in sick context.
1: Do you mind if I just do that right now? I'm very curious what I get. Um, what was the question that you typed into Google?
0: How to become and then see what to Google become.
1: says. Okay, <laughs> this is really funny. This is clearly because of my novel that I'm writing. First one is how to become a program manager at DARPA. The second oh, wow. one I don't really it's understand so is, is how, to, how to become a real estate agent. I have mm, no idea. Okay. And then the third one is how to become a flight attendant. Not even a pilot, but wow. a flight attendant. <laughs> I don't really get it.
0: I really—it I, must have to do something with like geographical location. Oh yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe like, it assumes you know, I want to be, a- be
1: in the air a lot because I fly around like every few weeks, which is annoying. Mm,
0: okay, so sorry. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So after after your um, think tank, what did what did you do after? Like, how did that end? What happened after?
1: Yeah, so for that, luckily, I, I had a co-founder come on um, a few months after I uh, kickstarted it. I actually used Indiegogo to initially fundraise for it. Mm. Um, and oh, a feature I should mention about the think tank that is the is the main thing everyone attends to is that it was like a it was a mobile lab, like it was a it was a vehicle that would go around with a giant glowing brain that we had built on top. Um, and then it would like pull up to a school, and graduate students and undergrads would like pop out of it and then start teaching you about cognitive science. Um, and, so it's like you a know, food it,
0: truck for cognitive science.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> I love that.
1: And, and I don't know if it ever, you know, I, I should really check back in. I don't know if it ever got built, but just as I left the project, we were having the glowing brain be tied to a brain computer interface that you could wear. And so you would actually be able. The idea was you'd be able to activate different brain regions, like in your own brain, and then the the, the same regions would light up, in um, like on top of the vehicle, in the in the in the brain, the glowing brain that was mounted on top of the vehicle. And we actually fundraised for that as a separate project. Um, and we, we, you know, I don't think we really understood how scientifically feasible it was. So the the alternative would have just been that it just you know lights up with your amount of alpha waves or something like that. Um, but that that got built, and I don't know in what form because it, it finished getting built after I I left the project uh, to my co-founder who joined a few months after. Um, and it's still running actually. I think at the University of Chicago. Where last time I checked, like six months ago, it was still running. Cool. Um, and after that, what happened? I think I just got depressed for like two months because <laughs> it felt like it was a few, I, I got my heart broken by the thing oh. that I really cared about um, and then and then I think i um right i did that I googled that question and somehow I came up with some formulation of that question in Google that sent me to uh the blog of Scott Alexander and specifically a blog post on effective altruism. Um, actually I I know, I know the sequence. It was, um, I downloaded a bunch of iTunes university courses on philosophy, (laughs) ethical philosophy, and try to figure out what my ethical philosophy was. And then when I thought it might be something like utilitarianism, which I've I've Mm -hmm. since modified a bit, um, then I started Googling like how to live like a utilitarian. And then that sent me to the effective altruism movement, which is basically all about that, it's about, um, you know, how to have the best consequences in the world possible as an individual or an individual in a collective movement. Um, and Do you want to open tempt- that yeah. up
0: a little bit about um, the effective altruism movement in general? You know, like, were you involved uh, spe- like in the organization itself or, or like in giving what we can? There's several different branches to it, no?
1: Yeah, so the effective altruism movement is huge. It has, you know, it's got tens of thousands of people around the world and um, lots of organizations devoted to using reason and rationality and and scientific thinking to figuring out how to do the most good. Um, And uh, I went through a few of the different organizations, but the main one that I spent time at was the Center for Effective Altruism, which is based in Oxford, and with a guy named Kerry Vaughn i opened up the us branch of that organization and we ran a conference called effective altruism global that happens in a few places around the world each year or it might it might have since gotten consolidated we we tried to do a crazy thing of hosting three different effective altruism global conferences in three different uh continents in one month which was a really insane thing to do. Ouch. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, although we, it worked, it worked, it just, you know, it just burnt me out a lot. Um, and then we started a fund, um, or at the time it was an, a network of investors and donors called Effective Altruism Ventures, uh, which is now called Effective Altruism Funds. And so, so the conference was about kind of coordinating the ideas inside this huge movement, the Effective Altruism Ventures was about coordinating capital, specifically for early stage projects that are just getting off the ground. Um, and then I ran the Pareto Fellowship, which was uh, essentially trying to coordinate early talent um, inside the movement. So trying to find, in particular, you know, students and young people who are on the fringes of the movement and giving them uh, colleagues to work with and a space to develop independent projects and... Um, we brought them together in the Bay area for, I think it was like two and a half months over the summer. And right. I think that's now called so a different what's, thing too.
0: What's the sort of like main idea or thesis of, of, um, the center for effective altruism? Like what's the sort of ultimate goal that like you said, doing as much mm-hmm. as good as possible, but how is that defined or who defines that? Right. And yeah. It's a really it good question for everyone or.
1: So I, you know, I shouldn't speak for the Center for Effective Altruism at Oxford because uh, I no longer work there, um, and you know, maybe there's maybe the thing has evolved, but I, I suspect it's still roughly the same. Which is, um, so there's this idea, basically in effective altruism, that it's possible to do more good and less good, which is already kind of controversial, right? Um, but when you hmm. actually probe people's intuitions on it, it turns out they more object to like the language of that statement than the than the actual content of it, um like if you ask someone like what's better um you know giving someone a salami sandwich or saving someone's life, then <laughs> they'll be like saving someone's life um right maybe the part i think part of what people are objecting to is the idea that there's maybe some kind of objective system of doing this um but you don't even have to agree with that like. There are plenty of effective altruists who are what you call—I um, forget the term. I think it's something like um, moral non-realists or something like that. Who who basically believe that you know a version of this is is that you don't believe that there is an objective morality somewhere out there in the universe that's instantiated into the fabric of you know atoms or whatever um, or the structure of physical reality, but rather that there are people. People want things. And then there are convergent things that people want. And then within that convergence, it's possible to find the ones that people want more and want less. For example, that's one version of it. I'm sure there are several inside philosophy because that's how philosophy is. Um, But essentially, it's this idea that it's, it's it's possible to do more good and to figure out what does more good and what does less good. And then once that's possible, then you can engage in the equivalent of some sort of scientific study. Uh, to to differentiate those, so um, the classic example is, let's say you care about uh, blindness and you want to help 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 the blind. Um, there are some interventions like training a seeing eye dog, which are quite expensive. Um, I think the number last time I checked it was something like forty thousand dollars to train a seeing eye dog. But you know that that number is probably wow. out of date. Um, it might be less. It might be more now, and then. To cure someone of blindness, you can remove their scotoma, which is an eye condition um, that you find in places where there's not good medical care, um, like some places in sub-Saharan Africa. And to cure someone of blindness by removing, by treating their scotomas, it. Uh, oh man, I'm probably going to get the number wrong, but my memory is that it's it was twenty dollars when this was a fact being passed around. Um, suffice to say, it's it's like in orders of magnitude less expensive than training a seeing eye dog. So it's like if you care about helping the blind, then why don't you help um, in orders of magnitude more people with the same amount of money than you would for the the price of a seeing eye dog um, and If you Makes agree sense. that 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 possibility exists, then the next step, which a lot of people you lose a lot of people at is the idea that you can actually compare different causes, and that's where a lot of people like you know who are initially on board about the prioritization within a cause will then be like, mm, I don't know about that. And I think that's a valid complaint. But it's the idea that essentially, you know, similar to the salami sandwich versus like saving someone's life, those are kind of like two different causes. And most people would say that the saving someone's life, you know, who, sa- saving someone who's uh, like about to fall off a bridge is more valuable than giving someone a salami sandwich. And then that's a form of cause prioritization. So effective altruists will say, will, will tend to group themselves around um, some causes being more worthwhile than others, and those the, the main three causes that people devote themselves to um, end up being global poverty and global health, um, because the idea there is that it's often much much cheaper to help someone in a place uh, that's a you know in a, in a place with low GDP um, or where there are lots of poor people than in a country where there are lots of rich people. Um, the next cause that people care about tends to be animal welfare, um, where it's a similar argument there that you can just, you know, even if you think animals suffering is much, much less important than human suffering, you can still help many, many, many more animals for the same amount of money than you can a human. So a lot of people will say that that's actually more important than working on human suffering. And then the, the final contingent, which has grown enormously in my time since I joined Effective Altruism, Um, You know, back when I joined, it was was seen as really esoteric and fringe. Um, But the the final cause is what people are now calling long termism. The idea that um, the the, the thing that you can most intervene on is actually the lives of um, the trillions and trillions of possible future people who don't have a voice yeah. and you can do things now to make the future dramatically better. And so those people yeah. typically work on existential risk, which you mentioned uh, right before we started talking, which is the idea that there are things that might be able to wipe out all of humanity, not not just like 90%, but like literally all, all living beings on the planet uh, or all humans. Um, So that's, that's a big ramble to your, to your
0: question, but no, no, that's very, that's great. So, uh, like, was it, was it during your time at the center for effective altruism that you really first got introduced to the ideas of existential threats or what's your sort of personal introduction to the subject and, and how do you feel about it?
1: Yeah, it started, my introduction to it was pretty gradual, I would say. Um, although actually, no, that's wrong. I would say my introduction to it was really striking and immediate, but my uh, psychological inclination toward it was really gradual because it's a lot to take in. So, you know, I, after Googling that question, effective altruist stuff came up. Um, I was still living in Chicago, I think. And then it turned out an effective altruist conference was happening in a few weeks. And so I just, I think I just basically moved to the Bay because it was clear that that's where the most people were. And um, at that conference, which was called the Effective Altruist Summit, it was it was relatively small back then. I think it was something like 200 people. Um, and uh, when I was there, you know, there was a lot of talk about this idea that there are there are things like pandemics and artificial intelligence and nuclear war that could really massively mess up the world, um, or even cause humanity to go extinct. And I think my initial reaction to it was like, whoa. And then it was, um, I'm not ready for that. And so I initially mostly focused, um, I was mostly just interested in the other aspects of effective altruism. Um, oh, I would, I, one, one important thing to mention people sometimes talk about there being a fourth cause inside effective altruism or a fourth cause that people tend to gravitate towards. Again, there are, there are probably hundreds in reality, but, or maybe dozens but people group around these main four. And the fourth is something like <laughs> people call it meta. Um, and it's based on the idea that um, right now we don't have the capacity to improve the world massively um, just the way things are. So we should invest in those things, which help us improve the world much more in the future. Um, and so that could be, investing in philosophy <laughs> in figuring out like, what is the good? Um, it could be investing into building the effective altruism movement, which is a group of people devoted to figuring out like what is good and how do you do the most of it? Um, or it could be, um, I guess this is a sub bullet of the previous thing I mentioned, but prior into prioritization research, which is trying to figure out of all the good things that you could do in the world. What is, you know, what's the best, um, Because if there's something that turns out to be much, much better than anything that we're currently doing, then we should all switch to that. And I I think that's one of the coolest things about EAs, as they're called, effective altruists, in that if you give them (laughs) a really good argument for what they should be doing, often they'll just do it. And I I think it was especially apparent when I was coordinating funding inside the effective altruist movement, you know, and I'd done fundraising and stuff stuff before, but in the EA movement... um, it wasn't this adversarial game of like, how do I market this thing the best to the funders? Like what's my best sales pitch? It was honestly just like figuring out their opinions of what, like of reality. Like, how do you, how do you think the world works and offering a different or, or, uh, offering your opinion of how reality works. It's like, I think that the, that this is the way to do things. And then you list the arguments and then if they agree with the arguments, then they'll, they'll just send you the money. And if they don't, then you'll argue with them and you'll either disagree and they're no hard feelings or you'll disagree and then they'll convince you, in which case sometimes sometimes you might abandon the thing you're raising money for, or you'll convince them, in which case then they they send you funds to do the thing that you want, which was, you know, it felt oh like kind of fundraising paradise. If only paradise. the whole
0: world was <laughs> that analytical.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, the interesting thing is I... I Still count myself as an effective altruist, but I'm less associated with the movement now because, um, that partially because I think the types of things that get invested in um, is pretty broad, but not broad enough um, with my current right. way of thinking, and so now it's back to funding being hard again.
0: So, but as I've understood it from our previous conversations, though, a lot of your work and thinking has been guided by the understanding of existential risk. So that's yeah. kind of what's stuck on. More or less, broadly speaking. So, like, what, what are your concerns? Like, what concerns you the most in this realm? And, and how do you think that these risks can be potentially mitigated?
1: Yeah. So, the, the, maybe, maybe just to ask a question, uh, what's, what's, uh, in terms of your audience, what do you think your audience or, or you or your audience will already have as background in this area? Just to know how, how deep to get into.
0: Oh, that's, yeah. I mean, I think maybe we could just, sort of stay on the shorter, uh, shorter side of, of, I mean, yeah, maybe you could just open up a little bit more the idea of long-termism and why it's so important that, um, that, you know, it's the 90% versus 10% idea. Yeah. Go, go from there.
1: Right. So there's this idea going around now, which is that right now we're kind of, that, that we might be, I think Holden and Karnofsky just published an essay on this, that we might be in the most important century of all human history. Um, and the reason for that, I, ha- I haven't read the article yet, but here's my version. Um, the reason for that being we're seeing enormous technological and societal change. Um, and it seems like it, um, a lot of it is going to determine maybe the rest of future history especially when you get into the area of um, technological change and the possible risks that it brings about. Yeah. Um, Or the possible amazing utopias it could bring about. So, you know, to take one technology, which is the one that people think about the most, there's artificial intelligence. And if you imagine that it's possible to make an artificial intelligence that's dramatically more intelligent than a human... And by intelligence here, I don't mean anything special. I just mean like um, something like ability to figure out how to accomplish tasks and then and then accomplish them. So like you know there are stupider ways to um, go find a salami sandwich <laughs> to go back to that, <laughs> um, and, and there are smarter ways. And then the and then um, the smarter the more intelligent person or being would figure out like the fastest and cheapest. Most effective route of getting the salami sandwich. So that—that's all I mean. I don't mean anything like mystical um, or anything implying consciousness. But the idea is, if you can—if you can build something that can solve tasks like orders of magnitude better than the current humans, um, if you think that's possible um, through artificial intelligence or through you know uh, enhanced computing power or better algorithms or what have you, then we should be pretty concerned about what that thing is going to do, that That super intelligent, quote unquote, thing is, is going to do. So um, maybe you might think that um, by default, the, it will be benevolent and it will do nice things for humanity. But when you really dig into it, there's not necessarily a special reason to believe that. Like when you look at the most intelligent humans um, or the most capable humans, let's say, uh, there's a pretty wide variance in uh, how much they're good people and how much they want to help other people. And yeah. so there's this idea of what, what they call the orthogonality thesis, that you can have something that's very intelligent, or, or basically there's a spectrum of intelligence and there's a spectrum of morality or, or how inclined you are to help, to help other beings. And those things aren't necessarily joined or correlated. Um, so the worry is that you create something that's extremely intelligent and extremely capable. I think capable is actually a better term, super capable, Um, and that it just has goals that are different than ours and doesn't really care about us. It's not necessarily that you create like evil robots. Um, it's more that you create something that's really, really capable in accomplishing its goals and its goals are, (laughs) you know, alien to us. So for example, um, there's the there's the classic example of the idea of a paper paperclip maximizer, like that you create a superintelligence that only cares about the amount of paperclips in the world. And initially, maybe it's to try to like um, make lots of paperclips for your company, so you become the best paperclip manufacturer in the world. Um, <laughs> but if you give something that's super capable only that goal, then it doesn't care that you don't want your own atoms constituting your body to be broken down into raw materials for paperclips. Um, it also doesn't yeah. care that um you know you would want to live a happy flourishing life if that gets in the way of it making paper clips um yeah you know so we run into this question with psychopaths and sociopaths for example which are sometimes examples of extremely intelligent people who have goals that don't really correlate with the the well-being of other humans
0: yeah do you have a question i mean uh not really a question just a, a random uh, comment i mean i, I read um nick bostrom who's the director i think of yeah. the future of humanity institute at oxford um on digital minds and it's a very interesting read because it really explores the idea of like how like because it basically goes back to the idea of, like or what you were saying earlier being I mean, like we should invest into philosophy because everything comes about everything becomes about uh Morality and ethics right. and moral uncertainty. So, you know, even if we're building these AIs or thinking about how to build them, then it's about the edge cases, like what to do in this case. Right. And then if there is a if there is like a, a species of digital minds that, for example, have, you know, are able to assume the intelligence worth of like a thousand years of a human life if humans could live that long and humans will obviously never develop at that pace biologically speaking at least um then how do you how do you sort of uh, maintain humans on the planet and coexisting with these digital minds and can you actually program a class of digital minds to create laws and keep order between the other digital minds and and human mm. species, so it kind of all goes back to the to philosophy, now, like that kind of like you can't you can't really develop AI if you don't have if you don't have a very clear idea of what to do with moral uncertainty.
1: Yeah, and it's it's fascinating because it's the first time in which you know uh, philosophy really like philosophy has always mattered, but. For the question of uh, artificial and super super intelligence to these to the extent that it's possible to make one like philosophy really yeah. matters because <laughs> if you get yeah. it wrong um then we're talking about the most capable being ever created um not you know n- not necessarily doing things that are in line with what is what is what is good um and that could determine the rest of how history goes um yeah. you know in the in the past maybe the worst thing that would happen is um, you know, you're trying to philosophically educate the king or something or a world leader, and, uh, it doesn't get through to them. And so they drop a nuclear bomb or they, you know, kill everyone in in some persecute all the, all all of some ethnicity in some country. And that, you know, that's no good That, 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 that alignment problem failed, but at least, you know, there's the possibility to recover from that. And now we're actually facing a situation in which if you don't get the philosophy, right, there might be no recovery which would be, right. a bummer.
0: Yeah, that, that would be a bummer. Um, <laughs> Just say okay, that, so, uh, you, you, okay, let's use this as a segue. I, I'd love to hear a bit about, you know, what you think are some potential solutions. Like, what do you think is the role of institutions or like, in, in all of this? Like, how, how, do you have any ideas?
1: Uh, well, let me start out by saying I have no idea, but, um, certainly I think there are, there are good avenues for exploration. Um, I think one is um, we ourselves need to become more intelligent to create a good a good benevolent superintelligence, and that should happen before, ideally, before we create some the most capable thing ever made, um, ever born. And um, I don't know how long that will take, but I think good avenues for increasing our own intelligence in order to better solve the question of how do you create a benevolent superintelligence. You know, good avenues for that, I think, are, like you said, increasing the ability of existing institutions or new institutions to think well, um, because the problems are much vaster than what any one genius can solve, or even, you know, a team of smart people. Um, They're going to require heavily networked knowledge and not just knowledge from any one field. Um, So I think a good avenue there is, Um, yeah, I mean, uh, when it comes to exist, improving existing institutions, I think that that my my focus is less on that, um, just because uh, of the value drift, for me, at least the value drift that tends to happen when you start integrating yourself into existing institutions and power structures, like you enter, you know, the classic example is like you enter as a assistant professor of philosophy who's trying to create a new, new, new philosophical system. And what you end up doing is instead just like publishing a paper to keep your job um, every few months. Right. (laughs) Um, Or, you know, you try to enter IARPA, like which is a government agency for figuring out new technologies to create intelligence Um, mostly social technologies so that, you know, they fund like super forecasting and stuff like that. Or, you know, you enter IARPA and then soon you find yourself kind of kidnapped by the internal political strife at that place, rather than doing the thing you came there to do. Um, Nonetheless, I have, I have friends who are very competently going about that kind of thing. Like they, I I think I, in a lot of cases, I shouldn't mention them because of the, the nature of their work in, you know, in, in institutions that they're trying to um, integrate with um, in a way where they're trying to bring their own thing and that might come into conflict with the institution. But, um, you know, people are very competently going about that work. And so my focus is mostly on creating new institutions um, that are collaborative with the old institutions, not like radically new institutions that exist, you know, on a desert island, but um, new ones that are capable of, from the beginning, Having a rigorous epistemology, um, like a, ways of knowing and and intelligent modes of operating, in order to solve some of the the big questions. And so, um, yeah, it's a big topic. But that's that's the it gist. Is of it is a big
0: topic. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the interest of time here, but I'd love I'd love it if you could expand expand a bit on on what that looks like for you. Uh, we we're talking earlier about the lineage projects if you just right. open up that concept. I think it's very fascinating. Yeah,
1: okay. so this is I would say where some of my thinking comes into conflict with standard effective altruism movement style thought. Mm. And I I, I may I, I I'm sure I made sure to highlight effective altruism movement rather than effective altruism philosophy, because they're actually quite distinct. Most people react when they when they react poorly to effective altruism, they're reacting to the demographics of the movement, the patterns of thought that you find in the movement and so forth, rather than the, the overall philosophy, which is like we should think really hard about um, how to do the most good. Uh, like when you poke people, they actually a lot of people who agree with that statement will still find that they go to an effective altruist meetup, for example, and then come away with the conclusion like uh, people here are too analytical or people here are not ambitious enough or, you know, something like that. But, you know, it's important to discriminate between the sociology and the philosophy there. Um, Right. Anyway, that's a long prelude to, to say that um, my current thinking on this, you you haven't, I I haven't really found inside the movement so much except for people who are on the fringes. And um, mostly it's that when I observe how do I put this? Essentially, that when I observe, when, when I find people in the world who are really good at, and groups of people who are really good at figuring things out, um, it tends to be emergent from really personal relationships that that person has or within that group. Um, so, you know, what I, I think one piece of supporting evidence of this is The vast majority of effective altruist thought that I've encountered comes from a small group of people who have known one another for a while since um, the early 2010s or sometimes even before that. And then since then, the amount of uh, the amount of concept like generation inside the effective altruism movement of new ideas, new cause prioritizations and, and so on has really slowed um, because it and, and my thinking about that is that it's mostly because these these people had very generative interactions, and then after that, as the movement grew much more expansive and, and less personal, um, you saw a little bit less of this, and but you still see it at the fringes. So you still see people grouping um, at the edges of effective altruism and that kind of whole sphere of, of thought who are in fact um, being extremely generative and rigorous in in their thinking and. So, part of my focus is how do you create the base conditions for intimate personal relationships between people who are highly generative? Um, And that's a project that looks a lot more like soft than the standard effective altruist way of going about things. Like, it's pretty hard to do, um, you know, (laughs) uh, a calculation of. Like, will this benefit the most people Um, or, you know, weighing the amount of quality adjusted life years that will be generated by um, what I'm trying to do, which is ultimately like just trying to get a bunch of people who are awesome to be friends with one another over the long term and to keep collaborating. Um, you know and involved in that you might end up with things that look more like I don't know authentic relating or a project that you and I have talked about previously that I'm focusing on um, which is like how do I get a bunch of these people to live in the same place and you know raise families together and have really long-lasting collaborations that are united by the conditions of place Um, but these aren't You know, in practice, what it could look like is just like Tyler is hanging out with his friends and it's it's basically true. (laughs) Uh, So, you know, it's it's not the sort of standard thing you would get a bunch of uh, support from a movement for. And maybe maybe you shouldn't either. Um, uh, So most of my focus now, I would say, is going toward a few different things that are attempting to create those conditions for long lasting collaborative friendships with highly generative people. Where one is the novel that I'm working on, which is a kind of attempt to, in a way, uh, synchronize the minds of people coming from a lot of different angles. Where some of the people I, I think have uh, are are poised to have a really big impact on the world are coming from the EA movement and are really good at a certain analytical style of thinking. And then some are, you know, for instance, dancers who have, I think, something very important to teach us about the nature of intelligence and goodness, but who aren't really um, excited about the possibility of like sitting on a couch with an, with a, someone who's highly analytical minded and, and hearing the monologue and, and engage in logical arguments for a really long time. So the, the novel is kind of trying to find the synthesis of A lot of different styles of thought that I think are important for solving the big questions. Um, And then there's um, a lot of thinking going into how to group all these people together and the conditions that you need to get them to collaborate over the long term. So thinking very concretely about like physically where, like should it be in Vermont, in the wilderness? Should it be in New York City? Should it be in Berlin? Um, you know, if it's in Berlin, then you have to deal with the visa problem of America's coming to Berlin. And if it's in Vermont, then you have to deal with the visa problem of Europeans trying to make it into the U.S. Um, so there it's a, it's a lot less, you know, like doing art and more like... Very careful planning and also figuring out what people's individual preferences are. You know, some of the people would want to loop in; they want really warm climates. Some of them hate warm climates, like me. I really dislike places that are hot and humid, even though it's some, a lot of other people's dream to live in a place like Hawaii in Barcelona. Seventy-five
0: percent humidity, uh, twenty-nine degrees, September. I'm like, give me a break already. Yeah, hate it.
1: Yeah, same. Same for me. I I do not thrive in those sorts of conditions as a Northeaster, Northeasterner myself, but, you know, just running through all those. Yeah.
0: No, I just wanted to ask, so if people were like, what's the sort of stage shape of this project now? Like if, if people listening to this podcast want to support or show interest in what you're trying to develop, um, is there a way to do that? I
1: honestly, I think everyone should be doing this. (laughs) I I think everyone should make a list of um, I don't know who are like, the 10 people I know, um, who are extremely generative, and who I should weave into collaborations with one another and friendships. And then they should just be doing all they can, maybe not all they can, they probably have other stuff going on, but doing, doing a lot to try to get those people to know one another, to live near each other, to find projects together, to, um, you know, plan families together, things like that, that, that will weave them together. Um, because yeah. if we look at the history of the world, it's mostly a, a history of uh, very talented people getting together and doing things. Yeah, um, Absolutely. And, you cool. Know, so moving, we can talk yeah. about
0: you moving to Barcelona. I said the humidity <laughs> oh, yeah. thing, but you're, you're, <laughs> there, a there's, a, there's a there's a rule that you are not allowed mm-hmm. to spend August in Barcelona. You have to leave, which is the worst month. September yeah. is actually a lovely month. And the rest of the year, the weather is absolutely pleasant. So we can have this discussion. <laughs> I, I lived in Spain for six
1: here. months and Barcelona was definitely, was Barcelona and Sevilla and Granada were the highlights by far. Barcelona seemed really special too, like totally enchanted.
0: Yes, it is. And I think that there's like an interesting revival. Actually, I was talking um, in this office space that I work at with people there about how Barcelona was a bit on the decline in terms of mm. interesting people. We're actually specifically talking in this context of like are really interesting people with really interesting projects, thinking interesting things coming to the city. And um, these are people who are from here. And they're saying like for the last 10 years, like it's just been not great. Like it's really been on the decline since... Mm like before 2010, but they say they feel like a real kind of revival of the city in the same way that you see in like uh, Marseille, for example, that oh, people really? are kind of coming from other cities like Paris, Berlin, London, New York, back yeah. to Barcelona, because it is a super nice city. Um, but it does kind of lack that like high quality, like outside of, Cat like outside Catalan people culture where it's easy mm. to sort of... Meet people solving interesting problems. So that's my personal project: is to get everyone to come here. <laughs> nice. Well, it's nice
1: that it's temperate year round, and so you can please like the people who don't like it when it's too hot, except for August. And then the and then there are the people who need it to always be a little bit warm, and they'll do okay too. Exactly.
0: To, so that's the plan.
1: To, Amazing. Yeah, to do but some c- city gossip. You know, I, I've observed something similar in Berlin actually, and I've observed an, an anti trend of this in New York like, it seems like there are many more interesting people in Berlin than the last time I came here a while ago, which was like 10 years ago. And then I would, I would say New York people's had like swarmed there over the summer, but I would say on the whole, the trend that I've experienced living there as a New Yorker is that the amount of interesting people are declining, except for the ones who are able to support themselves financially. Um, and because the rents are was going it up wasn't you saying, who you know, tweeted
0: about like seeing a bunch of hot people somewhere outside of yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was you
1: <laughs> I tweeted I tweeted about the hotness of various cities a lot because I think it's actually really important how hot how attractive people are in different cities I think is a predictor of possibly lots of important things
0: okay well we can save this topic for the next podcast episode. <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> Cool, amazing. Well, thanks so much for coming on, Tyler. It was really nice chatting again, and good luck with all the projects. And I'll link, I'll link your website or Twitter, etc., so people can check out and follow what you're doing.
1: Sweet, this is a blast. Thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely, thank you.